Well, it is my privilege to introduce a man who does not need an introduction to our pulpit. He has been a friend for many, many, many years. That's Mickey Conley. I just want to share so it serves you to know that this man serves a significant role. According to the Book of Church Order, Mickey is our regional leader over five states. Among other things that he does as in leading his church, moderates a regional assembly of elders, oversees the election or confirmation of committee members for the region, and there are a number of those, coordinates the giving of aid assistance to the churches in the region, gives advice and encouragement to elders and elderships, and coordinates care to churches and pastors within the region. And that's why he is here. He is here because he cares and he wants to share with us his heart of care, which he does every time he comes. So, Mickey, thank you for coming and come and share with us. Can we welcome him? Adelanchara, thank you for all that you're doing. And God bless you, too, in the work that God has given you. You are sowing into those children and into Bolivia. And by God's grace, you and those children in that country are going to reap. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it is always a privilege to be here with you all on Sundays. Uh, had a had a busy weekend yesterday. I was able to get together with uh, Gene Emerson and have an opportunity to talk to him and pray with him. And uh, just want to give you a brief report. I, I find Gene uh, to be a man who is uh, wholeheartedly trying to apprehend God in the midst of his situation and to take his own soul to task in the midst of his situation. And he needs your prayers. He needs the prayers of this uh, church. And so I just want to appeal to you. I know uh, you have been, but I just want to appeal to you to uh, continue to pray for him and uh, to continue to pray for Liz. Uh, I also had the privilege last night of uh, having dinner with uh, Chris and Maria and Matthew and Eliza, and what a joy that was. Uh, one of my sadnesses this particular month when I wasn't able to be here uh, when uh, Chris was set in as an elder in this church. Uh, I have uh, known and, and respected Chris for a long time since he was in Pastors College. How many years ago? You can't even remember. Okay, good. That frees me. If you can't remember, then it's good that I can't remember either. Uh, but uh, then to see him come to this church and just, uh, as I've talked to your elders over the years, anticipate uh, that time when he would, he would join them in an eldership was a real joy. Uh, you know this, but it's worth repeating uh, elders are really gifts to the church. They're expressions of God's grace to the church. Uh, Jesus Christ uh, gives gifts to men, and, and those gifts, among those gifts, are pastors and teachers. They're elders uh, in the local church. So uh, I hope you're not just happy for Chris, but uh, I'm happy for him, but I'm also rejoicing with you as a church because he is just an expression of Jesus Christ's love for and desire to build this local church. And then what a joy it was to uh, just experience 
uh, how these men, Matthew and, and Chris, and I know Josh, I think Josh is actually in Charlotte this morning, uh, being there with his family, if I have that correct. So, uh, but how, how Matthew and Chris and Josh are really just working together as a team. Uh, an eldership is a team, and an eldership has to work together as a team to effectively serve the church. These men have different gifts. Uh, they have different areas of experience, but it, it was just wonderful to sit at dinner and hear them talking and hear them asking questions uh, and just to see what a team they are and their love for you and their affection for you and their desire to work together as a team to serve you as a, uh, as a church. So uh, I'm just, I'm just continued to be uh, thrilled with what Jesus is doing here among these men and among this church and it is a genuine privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, so you can please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 18. Uh, Matthew asked me to join in uh, your series on Mark, which was uh, something that I'd be very happy to do because I love preaching from the Gospels. Uh, Mark chapter 16. Uh, Christmas is just around the corner. Uh, if you're not aware, just open your eyes and look at the, direct, uh, the uh, decorations that are starting to go up everywhere around you and uh, stop tuning out uh, music that's all over the place and hear how many Christmas songs are being played. Uh, but there are many wonderful parts about Christmas. One of my favorite parts about Christmas is uh, Christmas movies. I think everybody has their favorite uh, Christmas movies. And I think my all-time favorite Christmas movie, which is a favorite of a lot, is, is It's a Wonderful Life. So how many of you are aware of It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, so I'm, I'm speaking, to the, speaking to the choir. So you know the basic plot of It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is in the depths of despair, George Bailey, and, and the angel shows him uh, what would have happened if he never would have been born. What would the world be like if he never would have been uh, born? And, and he goes through all of these experiences. There would be no savings and loan because uh, he wasn't there. George wasn't there to save it. Mr. Gower went to jail for poisoning some poor kid as a pharmacist. Uh, his brother drowned in the pond when they were uh, sledding. And, and as a result, all of the other people on his ship during the war uh, were killed as well, and his wife Mary would just been an old spinster, and uh, no Zuzu, uh, no Pete, no Jamie, they never would have been uh, born. And then remember the scene at the end where instead of Bailey Fire or Bedford Falls, it's Pottersville. And remember Pottersville, just X-rated movies and gambling and drinking and despair and and corruption, and. Uh, that was what would have happened if George Bailey would never have been born. But the question that, that meets us this morning as we examine Mark chapter 16 is, what if Jesus had never been raised? What if Jesus had never been raised? What if Mark's gospel ended in chapter 15 with Jesus still being in uh, the grave. His disciples are confused. They're disheartened. They probably all just go home and see if they could get their old jobs back. We would have no book of Acts. We would have no Paul. 
We would have no church. I wouldn't know what we would be doing this morning, but we wouldn't be here. Sin would abound. Millions of lives, including all of our own, would be left unchanged. Uncountable acts of charity and kindness, like we heard about this morning, would be left undone. The world in which we live would be far more like Pottersville or much worse than George Bailey's Bedford Falls. But Jesus Christ has been raised. John MacArthur Jr. says the resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith and everything that we are and have and hope to be is predicated on its reality. There would be no Christianity if there was no resurrection. So let's read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, Father, I pray that you would help us to hear a familiar story with fresh ears this morning and that as these women, we wouldn't be trembling or afraid, but we would remain astonished by the fact that you did not remain in that tomb, but you indeed have been raised from the dead. And because You have been raised from the dead. Everything is different. Every one of our lives is different. This world is different. Eternity will be different because you have risen. Affect our hearts afresh. This morning I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember, chapter 15 ends with Jesus being taken down from the cross and and being buried. And, And Mark makes the point of letting everyone know that he was laid in this tomb and this large stone was rolled across the face of the tomb. And uh, then we pick up the story uh, 
on the day after the Sabbath. They weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. So on the day after the Sabbath, uh, these two Marys go to the tomb to anoint Jesus. Anoint is really means to prepare him for a proper burial. Uh, the Jews didn't do embalming of corpses, but because the climate was a hot climate, um, bodies decomposed very rapidly. And I don't know any way to put this delicately, but they would have stunk uh, in those times. And so they covered the bodies with spices. So that's why the women were going to the tomb this morning. And the women were the same ones who were mentioned as being at the cross and the same ones who were present at the burial. And we have to recognize that it's important that Mark is, is mentioning these women. Uh, Mark's referencing women is actually an, an, an important testimony to the historicity or the reality of, of what is going on here. In, in their day and time, women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. They were banned from testifying because in Judaism, they were considered second-class citizens. In other words, women were witnesses who had no standing in the culture in which they live. Uh, Second-century critic Celsus, speaking a uh, critic of Christianity, he said, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. Now, don't blame me. Blame Celsus. I want anyone angry at me this morning. So we need to see that the only possible reason to mention women here is that this account is exactly as it has happened. And so as soon as the Passover ends, uh, we, we, they head out to the tomb. Now, think of some of the moments in your life uh, that, that just mark your life. Moments in your life that, that you, you can't expo- possibly expect how your life will be changed. Uh, I'm older than most of you, but I remember uh, where I was and what was said the day that President Kennedy was uh, assassinated. And just the, the shock, it was a life-changing event. For most of us here, certainly 9-11 was one such uh, event for us, an event that just changed our lives forever. Or maybe it was an event like a death of a loved one or maybe a medical diagnosis that you received sometime. But, but the, the, the kind of things in your life where your life is never the same after they happen. Your life has changed forever after uh, they happened. And, and what we find here is just one such event. But we need to be very clear as we, we, we appreciate this. These women didn't expect him to rise from the dead. They did not expect what they found when they arrived at this tomb. They went simply to anoint his body for burial, not in the expectation of seeing him rise. Did you notice that his 12 disciples, those closest to him, they didn't even bother to go with these women. They, they, they had no hope for this whatsoever. So it's not like the disciples decided, hey, 
let's, let's camp out in front of the tomb. Let's get our lawn chairs. Let's get our gas grills. Let's get our coolers out and, and just wait around until Jesus rises from the dead. That was not happening. No one expected this to happen. And so when you get there, they get the first surprise. And that is this, this stone, which Mark takes the time to mention, was very large, had been rolled away from the the door to the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And so they, they step into the tomb, and when they step into the tomb, they get their second surprise. They see sitting there this young man, probably an angel, uh, dressed in this white robe. And you can just imagine the women's surprise at this. Like they're thinking, who is this guy who is sitting in Jesus' tomb? We've never seen him uh, before. What is he doing here? You have to wonder if they even noticed at this point uh, that Jesus wasn't there. Were they, were they so taken with uh, seeing this particular uh, person? And their response was a very natural one. Uh, Mark says that their response was that they were alarmed. In fact, literally, the, the word is they, they were just dumbfounded. They just had no explanation for what was happening to them. They had no explanation for what they were seeing. They had no explanation for this young man. They did not know what to think. Maybe we could, we could paraphrase it in modern language this way. What in the world is going on here? Was what those women were thinking at this particular point in time. And then the young man speaks. And when he speaks, he gives them the greatest surprise of all. If they were surprised that the stone was rolled away, if they were surprised that a young man was sitting in the tomb that they did not recognize, if those two things surprised them, the greatest surprise was still yet to come because this young man utters to them probably the three greatest words ever spoken in the history of the human language. Think of all the words that have been spoken just in your own life. But we come to what I believe are the three greatest words that have ever been spoken in the history of the world. And these three words are simply this. He has risen. He has risen. Now, it's so interesting, just like Mark's account of the crucifixion. uh, If you're not reading carefully, you completely miss the crucifixion in Mark's account. All Mark says about it is, and they crucified him. 1524, and they crucified him. The account is, is sparse. The statement is simple. But the statement is so full of meaning for each and every one of us. And we're going to take some time later in this message to unpack that meaning. So this young man calls their attention to the fact that Jesus is is gone. And perhaps, like I said, they were so surprised to see this young man, they actually failed to notice it was Jesus was gone. Uh, But it's also important that that they have been sure that he is not there. Don't, don't miss that fact. There was, there was no 
there was no mistake. They are sure he was not there. Now, this whole thing is interesting because if you remember in Mark, three times Jesus had predicted that he would rise from the dead. He, he told them three separate times about this event. But somehow, with the disciples, with these women, it never seemed to register. Uh, maybe because, I imagine because the, the news that preceded that, that he was going to die, so shocked them, so disturbed them, that they were never able to hear or comprehend the rest of what he had to say. But now I believe this, this reality begins to come rushing home uh, for these two women who are, who are at the tomb. He is not here, but instead he has risen. And so the young men give them instructions. Go uh, tell the disciples and Peter. I believe Peter gets special mention here because of his denial and his need for encouragement. Go tell the disciples and Peter, he is going to meet you in Galilee, like he had said before. And then in verse 8, we come to this strange ending compared to uh, the other Gospels. Now, if you have your Bible out in front of you, uh, notice at the uh, end of verse 8, there's this little subscription. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. So uh, for many of the early Christian manuscripts, the story ends here in, in verse 8. In all of the other Gospels, uh, we see these accounts of Jesus appearing to people subsequent to his resurrection. In fact, 1 Corinthians talks about the reality of the resurrection, and it says he appeared to the disciples, and then he appeared to 500 people, and then uh, he appeared to Paul as one untimely born. He appeared to a lot of people, but Mark never mentions Jesus appearing to anyone right here at the, the ending of his Gospels. In fact, Mark ends with this, the women fleeing from the tomb, trembling and astonished. And those things had seized them. As a result, Mark says they didn't even tell anybody about what happened because they were so afraid. Did you notice that? And they said nothing to anyone. So we need to ask ourselves the question, why does Mark, as opposed to Matthew and Luke and John, why does Mark end his gospel in this way? In this unusual way. And I believe the answer is this. In, in Mark's gospel, fear is always the response when God breaks into someone's world in power. In Mark's gospel, fear is always the response when God breaks into someone's world in power. In other words, you have the story of this, this storm you have the story of the transfiguration. You have the story of this demoniac who was freed uh, from demons. Let's just, just, just look at a couple. Mark chapter 4, verse 41, uh, speaking about the storm. And they were, this is, this is the conclusion, and they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then at the uh, transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that you are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then I love Mark's comments. He said he did not know what to say because he was terrified about what's happening there. In Mark's gospel, when God breaks in, in power, fear is people's response. And I believe that's how and why Mark ends his gospel in this way. He ends because he wants you and I, like this woman, to be likewise astonished by what we have found here. Likewise in awe of what we have found here. Likewise in a a sense of trembling and godly fear that God has broken in to the world in this way, with this resurrection power that God has broken into your life and my life, with this resurrection power. Mark leaves us with this question hanging in the air, the question that has characterized everything that Mark has written up to this point. Will you believe and follow this Jesus? Will you believe and follow this Jesus? Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God? It's the question that's hanging in the air for, for Mark's readers throughout history. It's the question that hangs in, in the air for us. It's especially it's a question that hangs in the air for uh, our non-Christian friends who are here today. You know, you're, maybe you're here today because something's been going on in your life and you think, wow, I need to go to church and you just happen to be here today. Uh, to hear this. Or maybe you were visiting family for Thanksgiving and they they dragged you along, maybe happily, maybe kicking and screaming, I don't know. Uh, But you're here this morning uh, as a friend and and you're not yet a Christian. And I want to challenge you with this question that Mark has. Will you believe and follow Jesus Christ? Will you believe this one the Son of God who came into the world, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death in your place so that your sins might be forgiven, and then has been raised from the dead. Will you believe that and will you follow him? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God? I urge you to consider and and let that question resonate in your heart and your mind until you come to the place where you say, I do believe that he is indeed who he said he was because of the fact that he has risen from the dead. But for the rest of us, answering that question, which we have at one point in our lives, will you believe and follow? Because we have answered that question, yes, there is life-changing meaning for each and every one of us in the story that we have read today. There is life-changing meaning in what I have already said are the three most important words ever spoken in the human language. He has risen. Michael Green says, The resurrection of Jesus was never intended to be a matter for academic discussion. 
it has the most practical implications that ought to never be considered apart from them. The resurrection should never be considered apart from these practical implications. The resurrection of of Jesus Christ, the fact that he has risen, the reason I can say that they are the three most important words ever spoken, prove and flesh out Mark's two main contentions from the very beginning of his gospel. If you can remember all the way back that far to Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ meaning the Messiah or the anointed one or the Savior, the one who has come to save us from our sins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, Mark, Mark gives away the ending right at the very beginning, right in the very first verse. He, he alerts his readers, I want to tell you of the gospel, the good news of a Savior, of a Messiah. His name is Jesus. He's not only a Savior, but he is the Son of God. And when we come to the end and we hear that he has risen as the ultimate proof of these truths, it is life-changing for us. It is life-changing in, in a couple ways. The first is this. It gives us assurance that Jesus is indeed God the Son. The resurrection gives us assurance that Jesus is indeed God the Son. The critical question in Mark's gospel, and in fact the critical question in every gospel is this. Who is this? Remember in the gospels in various places where Jesus sits down with his disciples at one time and says, Who do people say that I am? That question was important because that's the question that hangs over every gospel. It's certainly the question that hangs over Mark's gospel. Who is this? And as I said, Mark states the answer right at the very beginning. And then he proceeds to prove his point throughout the gospel. Well, he teaches with authority. Not like our teachers. He's different. When he opens his mouth and speaks, there's an authority to the things that he says. There's a resonance in the heart of men and women because of the things that he says. In one place in the Gospels, I forget which one, but it says, no one's ever spoken like this. He teaches with authority. He heals the sick. He heals all the sick. Nobody leaves unhealed. When they come to Jesus, he heals them all. He drives out demons. The, the, the evil empire of, of, of Satan, who only wants to kill and steal and destroy and harm. When that, when that empire meets this one man, Jesus, that empire is just cast down and cast out. He drives out demons. And then he even controls nature. There's this horrible storm and he just speaks. Stop it. And it stops. The storm is over. The storm is done with. He walks on water. Now think about that. He's in complete control, not only of sickness and 
and of demons, but he's in complete control of nature. But the final and essential proof that Mark gives us to the question, who is this? The final assurance that Mark gives us as to who this is, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that he is risen. At Jesus' trial in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 64, we read this account. Again, the high priest asks, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So again, this, it's the question of the gospel, isn't it? Who is this? So they ask him directly. They ask him right out, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says what? I am. I am. That's exactly who I am. You, you have it right, but then he goes on to say this. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore their garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. In other words, the reason he was crucified, because he claimed to be who he actually was. The Son of God. The Son of uh, the Blessed One. And, and, and then he, he quotes from Daniel, and he speaks about the fact that there is going to be a time when you're going to see me seated at the right hand of the Father. So it's actually interesting. In this passage, he skips right over the resurrection and goes to his ascension and reign. And he says, uh, yeah, um, that's exactly who I am. And I am going to reign as the Son of Man to whom the kingdoms of this world uh, are going to be given. And when they hear this, they just think that is absolute blasphemy. No man can claim to be who you claim to be. And so he was put to death. Now, you notice here, there were, there were no second thoughts when Jesus hears that uh, as a result of his statement, he's going to be put to death. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, well, <laughs> maybe I was exaggerating a little bit. You know, after all, aren't we all children of God? I mean, come on, guys. Uh, he doesn't say that because here and in every other place in the gospel, he staked his life on this reality, the reality of who he is and Brothers and sisters, he asked us to stake our lives on that reality as, as well. But if he asks us to stake our lives on such a reality, we need to ask the question, how can we be sure? And Jesus said, you can be sure because not only will I die, but I will rise from the dead. Death will hold, have no hold uh, upon me. B.B. Warfield, the uh, old theologian, said, Christ himself deliberately staked his whole claim to the credit of men upon his resurrection. Let me say that one more time. Christ himself deliberately staked his whole claim to be to the credit of men upon his resurrection. When asked for a sign, he pointed to this sign as his single and sufficient credential. You just need one credential. To sufficiently answer the question, who is this? Mark only needs one credential to answer his assertion at the beginning that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that one thing is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul says the same things in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. And concerning his Son, who was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the, the first thing that the resurrection does for us is absolutely 
assure us beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. The Son of God come in the flesh to save us from our sins. Life-changing meaning. There is a second assurance that we have as well, and that is the assurance that he is indeed our Savior. Mark didn't just contend that he was the Son of God, but he contended that he was the Son of God who had come to save, that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, he was the long-awaited, the desperately needed Savior. But how do we know? Well, the resurrection assures us that he is the Savior. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus himself said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' own commentary on the purpose of his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, The biblical word ransom, the biblical uh, idea of ransom, is to free from captivity or punishment by paying a price. When, when, a, when someone was held as a slave, a ransom price would be paid for them so that they might be freed from their captivity. Or if a prisoner, in this time, was sentenced to death, a ransom price could be paid so that they could be released from their punishment. So when Jesus announces that he has came, As a ransom for many, what he means is I have come to free lost sinners from their captivity. I have come to pay the price for their punishment. I have come to give my life as a ransom for many, including the many that are seated here this morning. Scripture reveals to us that that freedom that we have as a result of his ransom price was a freedom from sin's penalty, freedom from sin's power, and eventually a freedom from sin's presence in our life. First of all, this ransom price saved us from sin's penalty. In Mark chapter 15, Mark emphasizes the idea of separation because of sin. That one of the things our sin does is separate us from God. We're his enemy. We're not at peace with him. We're separated. And that separation is highlighted by Jesus' cry on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I separated from you? And the answer is simply this, because as he hung on that cross, he was paying the ransom price to free us from our punishment, to free us from our separation from God. But the question is this, how do we know that this separation has been Bridged. How do we know that this sin bearing was indeed effective? How do we know that the ransom price was accepted? And the answer is simply this, because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Paul writes in Corinthians 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
But then he goes on, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Wayne Grudem says it this way. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was God's declaration of approval of Christ's work of redemption. It was God's declaration of approval of Christ's work of redemption. By raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying that he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins. That his work was completed and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. There was no penalty left to pay for sin. No more wrath of God to bear. No guilt remained. We have assurance because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the penalty for our sins that we deserved has been paid for another and that we have been set free and forgiven of those sins. There is even more because it assures us that we're saved from sin's power. Uh, Jesus calls his disciples to a radical life, doesn't he? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. It is a call both to holy living and wholehearted service in the name of Jesus Christ. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you recognize just how powerless we are in and of ourselves to do the things that he has called us to do. The disciples themselves are prime examples of this, aren't they? expressing unbridled devotion to Jesus. And then when things got tough, sinfully deserting him in the hour of his greatest need. The Bible just tells us over and over and over again that sin is an enslaving power. Sin is is personified or portrayed for us as this slave master who has us in his grip, as, as this jailer who has us uh, captive, one whom we are powerless to resist. Now, I'm an idiot in a lot of ways, but one of the ways I'm, I'm probably most an idiot, um, I've, I've had just a variety of surgeries. I actually think of myself as, as fairly healthy, but uh, my body has a lot of scars to prove that I probably haven't been. But one, one of the uh, surgeries I had, for there, were, there was a six-year period where I had 11 different surgeries on my vocal cords to remove these growths that were on my vocal cords. And so one of the things that I would always do when I would go in to have these surgeries is I was trying to see how long I could fight the anesthesia. Like, like, cause I liked the feeling of kind of going under. So I, I would say, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, when they, when they squirt the anesthesia, I'm gonna stay awake as long as I can. You know, when they, when they ask you, uh, like when you had your wisdom teeth, I'll count to 10 when they give you this. I, I did this. T- That's as far as I got. I didn't even get to t- the E in the end. I am a complete sucker for anesthesia. I'm powerless against anesthesia. And, It's stupid anyway, because why would I want to be awake for all of those things? We're powerless against our own sin. But with Christ's resurrection from the dead comes power to live a new life. To power to live differently. Power to serve him. Power to obey him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 4. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Oh, beloved of God, do you, are you struggling with a sin today that you just think this sin has so much power over me, I'll, I'm never going to be free from it? Oh, be assured that Christ has risen from the dead and the power of that sin is broken in your life. And you do have the ability to change. You do have the ability to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 6, he goes on, For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You no longer have to obey the sinful urges of your heart and body. You no longer are enslaved, but you have set free because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Romans 8:11. if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The power isn't even in your own. It's just the power of the spirit dwelling in you. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ can never be separated from his ascension. He rose not to remain on earth, but to be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, reigning on our behalf, personally present there for us and with us, especially through the Holy Spirit. John Calvin says, He therefore sits on high, transfusing us with his power, that he may quicken us to spiritual life, sanctify us by his spirit, adorn his church with the diverse gifts of grace, keep it safe from all harm by his protection, restrain the raging enemies of the cross and of our salvation by the strength of his hand, and finally hold all power in heaven and on earth. Praise be to God. He assures us that sin's power is broken in our life now. And eventually the resurrection assures us that we will be saved from sin's presence in our lives. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, For if you have been united with him in a death like his, and that's what it means to be saved, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We will, we will certainly experience what Christ experiences And that is eternity in heaven, free from all presence of sin. Because Jesus Christ has risen, you too one day will rise with him and reign with him. There's a coming day when all the effects of sin in your life and in the world have been finally and fully undone. John writes in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the band could come, or whoever you want to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. It was loud because he doesn't want it to miss it. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. There is no more separation. And God himself will be with them 
as God. That's the best thing about eternity. That we'll see the face of God, that he'll be with us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. Oh, brothers and sisters, what meaning those three simple words he has risen have for us today and will have for us for all of eternity. They mean that we can be assured that Jesus Christ is indeed who he claimed to be, the very Son of God, come to save us from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin to our great joy and to his great glory. Amen.